All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the summit. And uh, here's the deal. Um, You and I, we are most deeply impacted by those experiences we are least prepared for. I'll say it again. You and I, uh, we are most deeply impacted by those experiences we are least prepared for. And what I mean by that is um, I, I could, you know, if you and I were having a conversation, I could ask you what you did this past Wednesday, and chances are if nothing momentous happened this past Wednesday, it would take you, you know, a minute to kind of remember. Maybe you have to look at your calendar to f- remember what you did. But if I asked you about an experience that was deeply startling, uh, impactful, unexpected, something you were not prepared for, even if it happened years or even decades ago, you can recount those events like they happened this morning, can't you? And so I was thinking about this in my own life. Uh, if you asked me what I did you know, past Wednesday, I, I don't know. Like right now, I would have to go to Google Calendar and look it up and say, okay, here's what I did. But if you asked me about the first time I went to camp, um, I could, even though it happened decades ago, tell you about those events like it happened this morning. So the first time I went to camp, I was five years old, and uh, I went to the University of Richmond soccer camp. And uh, my parents did the absolute best they could to prepare me for that experience. Great parents, they're telling me about the schedule and what to expect, and we'll drop you off at this time, and we'll pick you up at this time. But uh, going and getting my lunch every day at this soccer camp was a deeply uh, unexpected experience that my parents did not prepare me for, and I remember it like it happened this morning. And so uh, I distinctly remember five years old going into this cafeteria and it immediately being overwhelming because it was nothing like my my elementary school cafeteria, right? Because in your elementary school cafeteria, everything is to scale, right? So uh, the, the level of the, uh, where the food is, the size of the trays, the way everything is set up. And so I distinctly remember walking into this uh, cafeteria, being overwhelmed, grabbing a giant tray. It felt like it was about this big, putting it up on you know, the, the metallic thing that you slide your tray against, leaning up and trying to put it up there. I can't even see the food, right? Because it's not at eye level. It's above my eye level. It's made for college students. All the workers there are not used to working with elementary schoolers, so it's not the nice, you know, elementary school cafeteria workers who help you figure out exactly what type of jello and you know it's pretty simple menu where there's just hot dogs and grilled cheese in the elementary school but here there's all sorts of complex stuff and those people don't want to help you because they're used to working with college students all the time I remember going around being tremendously traumatized being afraid to ask for anything being afraid you know to get anything other than jello because I didn't know what anything else was you know in elementary school um, we had always drunk milk from those nasty cardboard cartons which you know you love anyways and you open it up like this thing and it never works and you pour it in your mouth. But here in this cafeteria, they didn't have the nasty cardboard things. You had to take a glass and push it against something. I had never done anything like that before. I remember filling up my tray. You got the jello on there. You got the milk. This thing is this big. I'm trying to get to my table and my arms are literally shaking. They were like this the entire time. He's like, don't drop it. Don't drop it. Don't drop it. Don't drop it. Finally making it to my table. I remember exactly which table it was in that, uh, in that school cafeteria today. Making it, it was the closest one. That's why I remember it. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, not even able to place it down because it's so heavy, actually dropping it and it going, bam! And everybody in the cafeteria turning and looking at me. I can remember the entire experience like it happened this morning. And why is that? Because you and I, we are most deeply impacted by those experiences we are least prepared for, aren't we? Now, the reason I start with all that is because tonight we're going to talk about sacrifice and suffering and struggle. And if there's anything that you and I as Americans have been unprepared for, it is those 
concepts. In fact, scholars have written that we in the United States are the least prepared generation in world history to take on struggle, sacrifice, and suffering. If you study the history of the world just generations ago, if you look at medieval Europe, for example, those people experienced regular, devastating tragedy. In medieval Europe, one out of two kids died before their 10th birthday. And so you just think there's a regular rhythm in people's lives where they're experiencing heartbreak and tragedy and having to figure out how do I deal with grief in a healthy way. But you fast forward to today and we've had advancements in technology and science and medicine and we have iPhones that can control everything and we have remote controls and and what's created is this this illusion of invincibility where we think we can cure anything, avoid anything, fix anything, Google anything to know exactly how to fix anything immediately. And yes, we know that sometimes bad stuff happens, but it happens so rarely, surely it won't happen to me. And when it does happen to me, you are totally unprepared, aren't you? Totally unprepared. And that's why those experiences have been most deeply impactful on many of you. It's why if I ask you, what did you do last Wednesday, you can't respond. But if I ask you about an event that happened in your childhood or in your teens or in college or in grad school or when you were first married or after that marriage didn't work out, whatever it is, you can remember those events like it's a movie you saw this morning, can't you? You can tell me exactly what she said word for word. You can tell me exactly what wardrobe you're wearing. You know, I was wearing that Leonard Skinner t-shirt that's old and ragged. I mean, you you can tell me what the smell of the room was when you got that news that somebody is not going to make it or it doesn't look like you can remember it like it happened yesterday. You and I, we are most deeply impacted by those events we are least prepared for. And suffering, the concept that we are going to be talking about tonight, is that which we are least prepared for as Americans and Westerners. So here's the goal. is Tonight, you get this gift from this very long story. It's actually 71 verses. And the goal of this text is to prepare you. It's to prepare you and I, who are very unprepared for suffering and struggle and sacrifice, to be prepared for those things so it doesn't provide such a shock to our entire lives, not if, but when they come. And so you and I, we are getting a gift tonight. And it's a long passage. I wish we could go through it verse by verse. We can't. But here's what you're going to get tonight. You're going to get three simple truths to prepare you and to equip you to take on struggle, sacrifice, and suffering as you strive to advance the movement that God has called you to give your life to, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Three truths we'll walk through. Here's the first. The first is... Your sacrifice is inevitable. Your your, your sacrifice, your struggling, your suffering is inevitable. And here's the deal. The reason your sacrifice for Jesus, even to the point of suffering, is inevitable in this culture is because there's some aspect of Jesus that's wildly offensive to every culture. Okay, so here's the deal. You will suffer for Jesus in any culture you live in because there's some aspect of Jesus that's wildly offensive to every culture. Now, what you're going to see here in Acts chapter 6 is Stephen. He's one of the first deacons. We saw deacons appointed last week in the life of the church. Uh, Stephen offending one of the most precious uh, aspects of the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, the one thing you don't go after is the nation. You do not go after the nation and what the nation deems as precious. And here's what happens in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen does 
just that. Look at, look at verse 8. It says, And Stephen, so one of these first deacons we met last week, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So this public dispute is going back and forth. Uh, Stephen has taken his faith to the public square. He is engaging the culture. This public discourse, discourse this debate is going back back and forth. And if you look at verse 10, Stephen is winning, but they could not understand, uh, not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, for those of you who have siblings, you know when you're in a conflict, and even if things are rational and civil, and even if in the midst of that public discourse that may be going on in your family when your kids, even if you are the one winning that argument, things spiral out of control quickly, and the person who's losing often plays dirty, right? For those of you who have siblings, you know how this goes. I'm speaking a little bit from experience. Sorry, Eric. Here's the deal. You can have a perfectly legitimate, rational argument about why you're right and why they're wrong, and all of a sudden they play dirty. They just come up, and they will smack you right in the leg. Right, give you an old-fashioned Charlie horse, and you will be face down crying for mom. That's just the way it goes, and that's the way it happens here as well. All of a sudden, these leaders, these religious leaders who are afraid, they can't win uh, just you know, battle of the wits, so they decide to play dirty. And here's what they do in verse 12. Look at verse 12. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they uh, came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, here's the deal, here's the heart of why this is so offensive to this culture. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. They're in the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So again, I know this is kind of foreign, but, but keep in mind the Jewish culture says the one thing you do not offend is the nation, in particular what is precious about the nation. And these, these religious leaders get everybody riled up and say, hey, this guy Stephen is saying we don't need what makes us unique as a nation anymore. You know how we love the temple and we say that it's the temple you go to in order to meet God? Well, this guy Stephen, he's teaching that Jesus is the new temple, that God comes to us. We don't go to God, and we can fully know him because he's God in the flesh. That's unthinkable. He says, you know that law, that law that we have built our lives upon and makes us good people and makes us understand the right and the wrong way to live before God? What this guy Stephen is saying is that doesn't save us. We don't need it the way we thought we did because Jesus came and he was obedient where we can't be obedient. And he died so that we can be forgiven. He is going to do away with the temple and with the law. He is going to overturn this nation. Now, here's the deal. Come back, because the chances are none of that feels relevant for your life. And here's the reason why. is because as Americans, there's nothing culturally offensive about critiquing the nation. Am I right? Like, we are not a nationalistic People And so if you criticize the nation, if you do it to music, for example, you're going platinum. Am I right? You're launching a tour. You're getting book signings. You're becoming a celebrity. There is nothing that it's cool to critique the nation. But remember what we said at the very beginning? There is something offensive about Jesus for every culture. And in Acts chapter 6, Jesus offends their nationalistic preferences. But here's the deal. Today, in the United States, Jesus offends our individualistic preferences. Okay? For us, here as Americans, there's nothing offensive about offending the nation. But there is something unbelievably upsetting about threatening the individual, isn't there? 
You can criticize the nation all day long in the name of Jesus, and people will celebrate you. But here's the deal. Start pressing in on the fact that Jesus talks about your individual sexual rights. Start pressing in about the fact that Jesus and the men he discipled and raised up speak clearly and repeatedly about sexual purity before marriage, and then all of a sudden, like, hooking up with my girlfriend is out of the picture. He talks about not lusting after a woman who is not your wife, so all of a sudden, pornography is out of the picture. He talks about faithfulness and devotion and commitment, and all of a sudden, in a culture where we've been taught our entire lives, I get to decide who I have sex with, when I have them, and in no way, you know, put your religion on my sexual preference is all of a sudden Jesus gets unbelievably bizarre, unbelievably offensive, unbelievably unthinkable. You start pushing in on the fact that Jesus talks about what we're going to give our lives away to and our priorities and our career, right? I mean, for many of us in this room, you're thinking about your future and what's next. And as you think about next career moves, the only legitimate option, it's like there's not a category in our brains outside of this, is what is going to make me most happy? Am I right? Where can I make the most money? Where can I not work for that boss? Where can I be my own boss? Where can I set my own schedule? I mean, it's like you and I as Americans do not have a category for any other career option other than that. Am I right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus talks about life is not a story all about me. It's all about him. And all of a sudden, you are forced to deal with these really difficult issues like dying to self and giving your life away, not to you being happy, but making the most of the gospel and whatever sphere of influence you've been entrusted with. And all of a sudden, that starts digging in in the nitty-gritty areas of what you're going to do with your life and where you're going to live and what you're going to give yourself to and what career you're going to go down and what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to. I mean, you start having a conversation over coffee about, hey, I think that job decision is unwise for you, for the glory of God. I'm telling you, that conversation is not going to go well. Look, there's something bizarre about Jesus for every single culture. And it would be easy for you to read this story and see him offend the nation and think, well, that's not any big deal. Go, Jesus. But all of a sudden, he starts pressing in on our individualistic preferences and priorities. And all of a sudden, we get unbelievably uncomfortable. All of a sudden, we start seeing how we could be bizarre and oppressed and just culturally offensive to those around us who matter the most. Here's the deal. Because there's some aspect about Jesus that offends every culture, you are going, if you're going to be fully faithful to him, you are going to suffer for him in some way. And here's the question. Here's the question you have to answer right now. What are you going to do with that reality? What are you going to do with that reality? Tomorrow morning, if you are put in the place where you yourself or someone around you, you have to make that choice of being fully faithful or not. What are you going to do with that reality that it is inevitable that you and I are going to struggle and sacrifice and suffer for him in the most difficult areas of our lives? I see you've got two options. You have two options, I would say. I would say, on one hand, you can let culture reign over Jesus This happens a lot. I mean, a lot of times what happens is we approach Jesus much like a buffet. We take the parts of him we like. We reject the parts of him we don't like. And so we like the parts where, you know, he's for social justice and he's for tolerance and he's for forgiveness and he's for a new beginnings. And and don't get me wrong, he is about all those things. 
but then we are silent, we avoid, we reject, we explain away. We say, I read this article on the internet that says, you know, holiness and commitment and sacrifice and struggle and giving away my life for a cause bigger than my, I mean, makes me a little bit uncomfortable, so we're not going to talk about it, not going to accept it, not going to believe it. And I tell you, that's a legitimate option. People do it all the time, but here's what you need to understand. In the words of St. Augustine, who was dealing with people with this centuries ago, He said, if you are the person who believes the aspects of Jesus you like and does away with the parts you don't like, your faith is not in Jesus, it's in yourself. You are playing God in that scenario. And so you can let culture reign over Jesus, but the consequences are serious. The other option you have is to let Jesus reign over the culture and understand that sometimes there are going to be some things that are unbelievably culturally bizarre, that are going to be unbelievably uncomfortable for you. But here's the deal. Truth is still truth, whether or not it's culturally popular. Truth is not determined by majority vote. It's truth. And you've got an option there. I mean, you can... Root the truth in a culture that evolves and changes its opinion about what the truth is as regularly as the seasons change, or you can root yourself in the creator of the universe who from the foundations of the earth said, this is true. This is right. This is the rock upon which you should build your life. What seems like a more reasonable and reliable option to choose? And so here's the deal. From the very beginning, you have to understand that very difficult reality because it's bizarre. Jesus, some aspect of Jesus is bizarre in every culture. Back then, it was nationalism. Today, it's individualism. But here's the deal. Will you be fully faithful when it stops becoming convenient to believe? Now, a second truth that prepares us for this is that your suffering is not solitary, okay? Okay? Your suffering is not solitary. And that's just kind of my alliterated way of saying that when you and I struggle and you suffer, you are not doing it alone. Okay? You are not doing it alone. Here's the deal. Is that if you're anything like me, what you believe is that when you struggle, when you suffer, when you sacrifice, that is the moment where God is most far. What you're going to see here in this point is that's actually the moment that God is most near. And that is a precious truth that transforms our lives in the most tangible way. Now, what happens next is um, everybody gets riled up, and uh, they they seize and they arrest Stephen. They prepare to stone him. It's an unbelievably grisly way to die. And what emerges in chapter 7 is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Uh, Again, I I wish we could go through it verse by verse. I would encourage you tonight, read the whole thing and and just see how powerful and compelling this is. Basically, what, what Stephen does is he summarizes the entire Old Testament. He summarizes the entire Old Testament, and here's what he says. The story of the Old Testament is God being faithful, and you, not not you in this room, but the people he's talking to, you being faithless. God is faithful, and you are faithless. So he walks through the entire story of the Old Testament. He says, for example, Joseph. God gives you Joseph to save you from a famine, and you sell him into slavery. Uh, All of a sudden, uh, God gives you Moses to liberate you from slavery, and you're complaining about him in the wilderness. And so on, and so on, and so on to the New Testament. Here comes Jesus. God gives you Jesus to save you from your sins, and you crucify and you kill him. God gives you me to tell you that was a major mistake, and you're about to stone me. Here's how he summarizes in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, 
so did you. So you can imagine, this was not well received. This was not very popular. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. This, is, this verse right here is where I wish that the Bible would be turned into a movie uh, because this scene is unbelievably powerful. And they ground their teeth at him. Could you just imagine that? Being, have you ever been so angry you ground your teeth at him? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, as we said, the point of this point is that your suffering is not solitary. You're not alone as this happens. You wonder, how, how do you get that from all this? Well, if you notice, what Luke just told us twice in this scene is that Jesus is standing. Look again, verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, why would Luke, our author tell us twice that Jesus is standing. Now, if, if you remember, back to the first week when we started this series, we talked about something called the doctrine of the ascension, that Jesus, after he resurrected, he ascended. He went up to God the Father, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, what we said with that is just like you and I will work a long day, and then what do we do at the end of the long day when our work is completed? We will sit down. So does Jesus. He sits down because the work required for us to be saved from our sins has been accomplished. And all of a sudden, Luke tells us twice in so many verses that Jesus is now standing. Why would he stand up? Well, why does anybody stand up? Somebody stands up to advocate, to defend, to fight for, to, to show support, doesn't it? And so all of a sudden, what's being communicated is that Jesus is taking a stand. Now, one of the most famous historical stories that captures this happened with Jackie Robinson. Many of you, you know, maybe saw 42, the movie that captures his story, but Jackie Robinson played first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and as he was playing first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers and striving to break the color barrier as an African-American male, um, every single city and stadium he went to critiqued, yelled at, having racial insults, racial slurs, taunts, death threats, even bottles thrown at him as he's playing first base. City after city after city after city, stadium after stadium after stadium after stadium. He's playing first base, so he's right by the stands, for those of you who know the way a, a baseball field is lined up. And then one day, the Brooklyn Dodgers go and play the Cincinnati Reds in Cincinnati, and the same thing is happening again in between innings, and fans are taunting and throwing and everything again. And, and all of a sudden, Pee Wee Reese, who's playing shortstop for the Dodgers at the time, decides to make the long walk across the infield. He, from the shortstop, it's probably about 40 yards to stand next to Robinson. So can you picture this scene? I mean, just imagine uh, you're the angry mob who's yelling racial taunts at Jackie Robinson. I, you know, I know none of you would do that. And uh, all of a sudden, you just imagine this. Even let's get some audience participation here. So um, y y don't yell any, don't yell anything inappropriate. But you know, give me like a boo or something. Like a boo, you know, that's pathetic. Come on, come on, come on. I'm going to taunt you back if you can't. Come on. Okay. So so boo. Okay. Yeah, keep, keep it going, keep it going. Yeah, on loop, let's go. Okay, and so then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, 
Let's not get, let's not get carried away here. All of a sudden, uh, Pee Wee Reyes makes the long walk around. Come on. And he stands next to Jackie Robinson, and he stands, he stares right into the stands. And he just stands there. And the crowd goes as silent as this room. And what's being communicated in that moment where he stands next to this man? If you want to get to him, you're going to have to go through me first. This man now has an advocate by his side. I stand with him. The same thing is happening in this scene. All of a sudden, Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees the heavens part and he sees Jesus standing. What's being communicated is an arm wrapped around his shoulder saying, you do not suffer alone. I stand up for you. I advocate for you. I defend for you. Look, here on earth, people are standing up and they're throwing insults at you. But here's the deal. I am standing up to defend you and I am behind you and support you and care for you. You are not alone. In those moments where we suffer and we struggle and we sacrifice, look, I understand there's something instinctual inside us that says, I am all alone, God is far. But don't you see from this story, in that moment where you are suffering, God is most near. He's most near because he is the God who suffered as well and knows what it's like and he can draw near to the struggling and to the brokenhearted. So here's the deal, is that for some of you here tonight, you are exploring kind of what your Christianity is going to look like. And at this point, I mean, I'm telling you, you're signing up for a life of struggle and sacrifice, and this doesn't seem tremendously appealing. I get that, I understand that. But it's not a matter of if you're going to struggle. It's not a matter of if you're going to suffer. It's how it's going to happen. And here's the deal, because Jesus draws near in the height of our suffering. You have the opportunity to write a different story with your life when it's most difficult for you. So here's what I know. Here's what I know. If you're normal, I spend a lot of time with people who have major crises in their lives. And if you're normal whatsoever, I'm not just talking just to the non-Christian here. I'm talking to the Christian as well. What happens is because we're not prepared to take on suffering and struggle and sacrifice, what happens is something goes wrong. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's with a family member. Maybe it's with a coworker. Maybe it's at work. I'm not sure what it is. Something goes wrong. And all of a sudden, we retreat into past bad habits. We relapse, don't we? We don't know what to do and we feel alone, so we, like a dog, return to its vomit, return to past addictions, over-drinking, returning to weed in order to control the anxiety, returning to bad relationships, right? I mean, so many of you do this. As soon as something goes wrong, all of a sudden you're, sent, you're responding to texts you didn't respond to two hours earlier, don't you? You return to bad relationships, all of a sudden you have relapsed. And because you have relapsed and you start building your life upon sand as opposed to the rock, all of a sudden that relapse turns into your life blowing up. And all of a sudden it feels like everything is falling apart and all of a sudden it seems like you had things together and it seems like you have nothing together whatsoever. And so something's gone wrong, you've relapsed, your life is falling apart and all of a sudden what happens is you disappear. Right? God is doing an incredible work in your life, and all of a sudden, because of some sort of mix of self-righteousness, right, saying, look, I know I've relapsed into this bad relation. I know I've relapsed back into this past addiction. Don't judge me. It's going to be hard. You know, don't ju-. Self-righteousness, and because of fear, 
I can't believe I did this. Again, I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed. All of a sudden, you isolate yourself. And like a sheep runs away from a flock and is tracked down by a wolf, so we separate ourselves from the flock as well. And Satan, who is described like a roaring and prowling lion, separates, isolates, and seeks to devour you as well. And all of a sudden, you disappearing leads into more stuff going wrong, which leads to a greater relapse, which leads to a greater set of your life blowing up, which leads to greater isolation. And so it goes again and again and again and again and again, and things spiral way out of control. You ever lived that story before? You ever experienced that cycle? It doesn't have to be that way. Because Jesus has not abandoned you or forsaken you. When you suffer or struggle, he is most near in that moment. He is the Savior who suffered in your place. And so you, non-Christian, you, Christian, everybody in this room, you have an opportunity to write a different story as you struggle and suffer as well because you are not alone. He stands up and advocates for us when we need him the most. So we've seen that we're not, it's inevitable, we've seen that we're not alone. And and third and finally, we see it's not pointless, okay? We see it's not pointless. Here's what happens next. They grind their teeth. They pick up stones and stone him. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and falling on his knees, He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Remember the death of Jesus. He's dying in the exact same way. And here's the deal. There's this guy. I mean, he's a real man in real history. Here's the deal. He had parents. Um, He probably had siblings. He maybe had a wife and kids. He is put into a place of leadership, of tremendous influence. He's unbelievably gifted, a great communicator. He, he, unbelievably talented, unbelievable future, unbelievable prospects, death within hours of receiving his position of leadership. And if you're following along in this story so far, I mean, some part of you has to not only be wondering, I, I mean, this doesn't feel tragic. It feels pointless. It feels purposeless. And I think it's the reason why. Luke finishes the story as he does in 8.1. And, and Saul approved of his execution. He reminds us of Saul. Saul, who will soon become Paul the terrorist, will become a pastor. And this is death that he approved of and witnessed firsthand will be a major step in his life being transformed and turned upside down by the gospel. And next he tells us, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. If you underline or anything, I would circle that word, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And what happens, if you know what happens next, is the very thing that these opponents were trying to do, the exact opposite happened. It completely backfired. And all of a sudden, the movement scatters, and it wasn't stamped out. It explodes exponentially. And all of a sudden, the church is impacting not just a city, but cities, not just a nation, but nations, fulfilling their calling to reach the ends of the earth. And what happens when you look at the life of Stephen, this man who tragically, seemingly, pointlessly dies, you see that there is no such thing as a pointless death in the life of the church. There's no such thing as pointless suffering in the life of the church. His life was seed. And that seed gave rise to a fruit more beautiful than one life 
could ever accomplish on its own. This reminds me of one of my favorite statements in the entirety of Christian literature. It was written about 100 years after this by a guy named Tertullian. He was writing in a culture where they were experiencing the exact same thing again and again. And for 50 chapters, he writes this massive work saying, here's the deal. Here's why you shouldn't persecute us. Here's why Christianity is good for the flourishment of society. But at the very end, in his conclusion, he said, but here's the deal. If and when you continue to persecute us, what you need to understand is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That when somebody dies for their faith, when somebody suffers for their faith, it is not wasted. It gives rise to a fruit more beautiful than one life could ever produce. A couple generations ago, there was a guy in the United States named William Borden. Borden was an unbelievably well-known name in northeast, the Northeast uh, U.S. at the time. It would be like you know, having the last name Coors today here in uh, Colorado. Unbelievably wealthy, unbelievably influential. And prior to him going off to college, he actually attended Yale he converted to Christianity and pretty soon felt the desire to be a missionary. He wanted to go to China where the church was being persecuted as well. He goes to Yale. His classmates hear of his desire. He is mocked and criticized. Somebody said behind his back, or got back to him, that he is wasting away his life on this calling. He actually went to graduate school at Princeton, so twice educated in an Ivy League institution. He goes there, and while there, his parents offer him a job at the family business, the potential of being an instant millionaire. And he journals, I will not retreat from the calling that God has placed on my life. Following his graduation, he gets on a boat, he heads to China, and before getting there, he contracts spiral meningitis and dies within a few months. And William Borden, twice educated in an Ivy League institution, set up to receive millions of dollars in inheritance, unbelievably promising, unbelievably talented, dead at age 25. You know what happened? As the tragedy spread from that event, so did the inspiration. His word made itself back to Yale and Princeton. If you know anything about those institutions in the early 1900s, a great revival took place. And hundreds and thousands of Ivy League students decided to not build a life upon themselves, which they were encouraged to do, but to give their life away for the glory of God. Even Borden's stuff was gone through And when they went through his journal, they found at the very bottom, the last entry that he made in his journal was three statements that he had determined to build his entire life upon. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. And that simple statement became a rallying cry for thousands of Ivy League educated students in the early 1900s of the United States as they gave their life away. Here's this man, no life, no sacrifice, no suffering, no struggle is wasted in the mission of God. It is seed. And it gives rise to a fruit more glorious and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. So here's the deal. As we finish up, here's the deal. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you are going through. I don't know what you will go through. But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you it is not pointless. It is not purposeless. No matter how much it feels that way. No matter how much it feels that way. God is on the throne and he can leverage and work all things for good and according to the good of our our good as well as for the purpose uh, of his will. And so I don't know why it's going on. I mean, maybe 
Maybe here's the deal. Maybe uh, you're being refined. Maybe the deal is that you're just being refined into the image of a person that you could never be unless you experience these things of what you're going through. Maybe you're being protected, right? Something precious is being taken away from you, but it's for your good. God is like the parent taking away a bag full of chocolate bars from the little kid, and you're wondering why it tastes so sweet. It's like because you're going to kill yourself if you keep eating them. Maybe you're being protected. I don't know. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe you're just being used to impact other people. I mean, the deal is, is nothing influences other people like suffering well for the glory of God. Maybe it's somebody you don't even know yet. I mean, that's the deal here. I mean, Stephen didn't even have a conversation with Saul, and it was a major tipping point in coming to Christ. I don't know why you have been through what you're going through. I'm not sure why you're going to go through what you will go through, even this coming week. But I will tell you this. It is not purposeless, and God is working and moving and leveraging all of that for his good. And your suffering is seed, and it will give rise to a fruit more beautiful than you could ever imagine. So here's the deal. For you who are non-Christians and trying to figure out what, I understand this is not the most uh, seeker-friendly message to talk about suffering and struggle, but here's the deal. In this room, you will get the truth of what life is really like. And it's a matter of if you'll suffer, it's when and how. And Christianity alone explains clearly and coherently how you can be one who suffers and struggles with hope. Jesus Christ suffered in your place. The most agonizing, unjust event in the entirety of human history. And God used it for good. He can do it in your life as well. For those of you who are Christians as well, this is a time for deep introspection and reflection as well to ask yourself, are you willing to lay down even those cultural preferences and what you've been raised to believe from your infancy for the sake of letting Jesus rule over the entirety of your life? Your life will not be wasted if you make that difficult choice. It is for your joy to make that difficult choice. But you have to examine yourself and to say, have I made it? Am I willing to follow through with it in the moments where that dream becomes a reality? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you not only tell us the easy stories but the hard ones, and we thank you so much for the example of a man, Stephen, who suffers well for you and for the advancement of the movement, the advancement of the mission, God, let us do away with this illusion of invincibility that our culture has created around us. It is not reality. It is only an illusion. And God, as we struggle and as we sacrifice and as we suffer and as we're faced with the hard aspects of life, particularly in this city where, I mean, it's a playground. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. The the way of life It is a dream that we would have the self-awareness and the humility and the honesty to get beneath the surface of all that, to honestly evaluate our own lives and to ask ourselves, am I willing to do hard things for you? God, I pray for men and women here who do not yet follow you and who who may bizarrely be enticed by a message on suffering. And I pray for them that they would be willing to follow you even when it's not convenient or intuitive. God, I pray for the Christians in this room to really be willing to 
follow you in the moments where, like the disciples, they say, this is a hard saying, who can keep it? Who can obey it? Who can follow through with it? And God, in those moments when you press in and you're transforming and changing and working in such counterintuitive ways that our yes would be on the table, we would be able to forsake family and tradition and career and dream. I mean, it's all about you. It's all about you. And so let us actually live lives that proclaim that. God, help us follow through and be a church community that does that for the joy of this city that we love so much. We love you. We thank you this time. I ask all these things in your name. Amen.